Do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, lest others fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close to the maids, by the maids of Boaz, in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Uh, that all of it, uh, even the parts that are sometimes difficult for us to read, understand, are profitable for us. Uh, They are the means, your word is the principal means by which 
you speak to us, instruct us, encourage us, rebuke us, comfort us, bless us. We ask that you would use the word not only read, but now the word preached uh, as a means by which we would be better equipped to serve you, our God, our Father, in a sin-cursed world and serve you in a way that honors you and is a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I'm sure you have gone to the store before, to the grocery store, or maybe Hobby Lobby or something like that, some store, with your mom, uh, probably, maybe your dad too, maybe both, on some occasion. You've been there and you've seen your mom take things off the shelf, or your dad take something off the shelf and put it in the cart or in the basket. And, And when your mom or dad are done shopping, they take those things that they took off the shelf and they bring them to uh, the person who's called the cashier. Um, there are other names, perhaps, that are applied, but cashier is one of them. The person who takes money from your mom or your dad to, who are paying for those items that they want to take out of the store. We pay for things in our world that we want that don't belong to us, but we want those things to belong to us. And we pay other people Uh, to whom those things belong, and they then give them whatever it is we want. So it might be a, it might be a, a bag of flour or sugar. It might be a hammer or some tool, uh, that, uh, you're purchasing. Or it might be some bedding that, uh, you need for your bed or that your mom or dad need for their bed. All sorts of things that we buy when we go to the store. Things that we want, we pay for. Well, children, God also pays for something that he wants. Now, he's actually paying himself, but God pays for you and me to be his children, his spiritual children. He pays for us. And actually, what's going on is God the Son Jesus uh, paid for you and me by offering up his life as our Redeemer. We use the word Redeemer a lot in our church. And most all Christian churches use that term because you're pretty much not Christian if you don't see Jesus as the Redeemer. But he is our Redeemer, and to redeem is to pay for something. And what Jesus redeemed is God's people, his elect, you and me, if we are those who are looking to Jesus alone to save us uh, from our sins and to reconcile us to God. God, the Son, paid for you, paid for me as your and my Redeemer. This passage speaks, um, and I'll show you how as we go through the sermon here, but it speaks of a what's called a kinsman-redeemer, which is what Boaz was to Ruth and Naomi. A kinsman-redeemer. And Boaz actually acted in a way that resembles what Jesus has done for us, as you'll see in the sermon. I'll get to the points in a moment, but first, a reminder of the background. 
of this passage that we've read in Ruth chapter 2. There had been a famine, uh, a, a very severe famine in the land of Judah, where Naomi and her then-husband Elimelech had lived. Elimelech uh, had decided, uh, upon seeing the state of the, the land and the uh, lack of food, decided to relocate his family to Moab, to a pagan land to the east of Judah, uh, where he hoped to his family would survive because things were not as desperate, the uh, circumstances were not as desperate, apparently, in, in Moab as they were in Judah. And he brings his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, along with him to Moab. At some point after their arrival in Moab, Elimelech himself, Naomi's husband, dies. Uh, and his two sons, also while they are in Moab, take two Moabite women to be their respective wives. Kilion marries a woman named Orpah, and Malon marries the heroine of our of this uh, book, and her name is Ruth. She is a Moabitess, as we are continually reminded, or periodically reminded throughout uh, the book of Ruth, that she was from Moab, a pagan land. And she's identified with her Moabite roots uh, on more than one occasion in the book. Anyway, after uh, Malon, uh, after a while, after the marriage... That these two boys of Elimelech and Naomi to these respective women, both the men, both the, the boys, Naomi's boy, sons, Malon and Chilion, die in Moab. And after they die, shortly after they die, it appears, Naomi decides that she is going to return, going to leave Moab and return to her native Judah. Presumably the famine had eased and and uh, and more food was available also, which probably precipitated her move back. But she decides to go back to Judah. And her daughters-in-law, who are now both widows, uh, Ruth and Orpah, agree to go with her back to Judah. They've never been there, but they agree to go with her to this foreign-for-them land of Judah. Ruth, however, eventually, excuse me, Orpah eventually decides at uh, Naomi's urging to stay or go back to Moab, where her family that she was raised in lives. But Ruth is also urged by Naomi, Naomi to go back to Moab, but she does not. We know the story. She is intent on staying with her money, mother-in-law, caring for her mother-in-law, who is an old widow, uh, and she is intent on making Judah her new home and the god of of Israel, her new God. Which is why uh, uh, Boaz said what he said about her in verse 12 of chapter 2. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Which is a way of saying whom you've come to make your God. And they arrive in back in Judah, Bethlehem in particular, and by the time they arrive, their financial resources are exhausted, and their first priority is to find is survival and to find food to survive on. And Ruth, as the young one, sets out to try to find some food. She decides to take advantage of one of the Mosaic Law's provisions for the poor, which was the law of gleaning. Uh, and you know, Naomi probably had informed her about that, or she learned about it through uh, her affiliation with Naomi's family, perhaps her husband, Malon. 
Anyway, she knows of this law, and she proposes that she goes out to glean, and she eventually does so. And she providentially decides to glean in the field of this Boaz gentleman, who is actually related to Elimelech, her father-in-law who had passed away, Naomi's husband. And that all transpires as we, we read about, and I won't tell you anymore. You remember the rest of it. That brings me to the points that we're going to look at in verses 17 through 23 uh, that I want to call to your attention. The first is this. Because of God's covenant love for Ruth and Naomi, he provided them with a kinsman redeemer. But secondly, this story also, this account also implicitly teaches the second point, which is because of God's covenant love for you and me, he provides us with a kinsman redeemer as well, who is the Lord Jesus. But first, the account, because of God's covenant love for Ruth and Naomi, he provided them with a kinsman redeemer. I say covenant love because the covenant is that way in which God expresses his love for those whom he wishes to say save. The covenant of grace is a covenant which is grounded <clears throat> on that eternal, infinite, electing love of God. The divine love, uh, God's love, is the explanation for why God does what he does in the covenant on your behalf and mine. It is love that prompts him to enter into covenant and then to bless those who are in covenant with him through Jesus, the covenant mediator. That divine love is why God is willing to save us from our sins. It is why the uh, infinite creator was willing to unite himself to our finite humanity in the person of Jesus and become creaturely. That, fin- uh, that infinite love of God is why the person in the person of the Son, God was willing to be made under his own law, undergo the miseries of this life, endure the wrath of God and the curse of death of the cross, and be buried and undergo the power of death for a time, as the Catechism puts it. It is why, that love is why, he breathed life into our spiritually dead hearts and united us to Christ by giving us the ability to believe in Jesus. It's why he did all those things. It's his love that prompted him uh, foremost to do that. His infinite, electing, uh, eternal covenant love. And this also explains why He blesses you and me in this life. And why he blessed Ruth and Naomi with Boaz, their earthly kinsman redeemer. So what is a kinsman redeemer? The uh, the, uh, Hebrew word is goel. Maybe you've heard that. Sometimes uh, uh, it's used when discussing Ruth in sermons and uh, talks, Bible studies. What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, a kinsman redeemer is a close relative of an individual, of another individual, a close relative whose duty it is to act as a redeemer of sorts in times of uh, another family member's need, in time of need that another family member of his has. One who acts as a redeemer uh, in certain times of family need. There are four situations uh, in the Old Testament, Mosaic economy, Situations in which a kinsman redeemer was needed. So I'm going to uh, briefly recount those for you. The first situation in which the kinsman redeemer was needed was when a member of 
that person's family had lost possession of his property, uh, property in Israel that had previously belonged to him, but that he lost for whatever reason. Um, and it was the kinsman, his kinsman redeemer's responsibility to buy back that land that he, the, uh, the former possessor of the property that was lost, once possessed. We read of this uh, responsibility in Leviticus. You can turn with me there. Leviticus chapter 25. And I'm going to repeat, I'm going to be in Leviticus 25 again, so you might keep your thumb in there, your finger in there, uh, for the second reading of it. So in chapter 25, verse 25, we read this. This speaks of the kinsman's, uh, redeemer's responsibility to buy back uh, land that had been lost by one of his relatives, close relatives. 25.25 If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, that's the kinsman redeemer, is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, I bet, let me but in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient uh, for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his, what was previously his, and he buys back and is now again his, his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at Jubilee, it shall revert, that he may return to his, what was formerly his, property. You see, this passage and this requirement that a a close kinsman purchase property if he is able to do so of another kinsman who has lost the property or had to sell it because of dire circumstances in life. This highlights how important it was to God that an Israelite family in the Mosaic economy not permanently lose possession of land that he had inherited uh, from his forefathers, land which God had given to the 12 tribes of Israel. It was extremely important that that land be held by those to whom it was, descendants of those to whom it was originally given. Why? The reason is because the land was a picture of heaven. It was a picture of, it was a, it was a sign of the spiritual reality that the land itself typified was, which was one's participation in heaven as a result of being forgiven from one's sins. Now, of course, not every Israelite was forgiven of his or her sins, uh, but it was, a, it was a sign of that, that which they could have if they would look to the covenant mediator, the kinsman redeemer. Um, and this, it is this redemption of property by one's kinsman uh, redeemer that lies behind the narrative that we're going to look at when we get to Ruth chapter 4. A second situation where a kinsman redeemer was needed was when an Israelite had been forced into indentured servitude, that is to say slavery, by financial hardship uh, that he had incurred. The kinsman redeemer was the one who was to purchase that man's freedom, if at all possible. Again, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 47 through 49 speaks of this. I'll read it. 
Now, if the means of a strange... Let's see here. Uh, seven, yeah. Leviticus twenty five forty seven. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to this stranger or sojourner as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him. That's the kinsman redeemer. One of his brother's relatives may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Or, if he prospers, he may redeem himself. Kinsman redeemer there, another situation. A third situation where a kinsman redeemer was needed is when an Israelite man or woman had been murdered, had had their... Uh, life unjustly taken from him, as opposed to justly taking of their life, but unjustly taken from them, murder. Under such circumstances, it was the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to track down the, the his relative's murderer and have that person put to death. See that he was put to death. Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 19. I won't bother to read that right now, but it's there. Kinsman Redeemer, that uh, term is used, uh, Goel is used in that, that section. And then the fourth situation which a Kinsman Redeemer was needed was when a person, an Israelite, was unable to make restitution for a wrong that he or she had committed. Theft, for example, where they had stolen something. Say in desperate circumstances they were hungry and stole a loaf of bread. We, we have that illustration in scripture uh, and is caught. Uh, and uh, doesn't have the money to uh, to uh, repay and uh, punitive damages as well as well that were required under the Mosaic Economy's law uh, doesn't have the ability to pay back uh, and he needs to make restitution but he can't a kinsman redeemer was to make restitution for him if at all possible Numbers chapter five verse eight by the way the New American Standard translation is not a good one there. The ESV or the Net Bible's translation is the proper one, uh, not the New American Standards translation, but I won't bother to show you that right now. Four situations in where a kinsman redeemer was needed in ancient Israel. Now, there are three things to notice about the obligation of all Israelites to be redeemers to their distressed, we'll call them, kinsmen. Four things, or three things I want you to notice. That, that are evident from these various texts that I've uh, read or alluded to. First is this, that obligation that they had, they had as parties to the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, the old covenant as the uh, writer of Hebrews puts it or describes it. This was an obligation that they had under that covenant administration. Second thing to notice about this obligation of the kinsman redeemer was that it reveals how important it is to God that his people care for those within their extended family who need such care, who are in distress and need care. Their relatives are to come and take care of them in the various ways that we've just looked at or uh, a moment ago. You, I hope, are see the application to today. We're not under the Mosaic administration of the economy, so uh, of, of the uh, covenant, rather, covenant of grace. We're not under that administration. But the general equity principle 
applies. And that is that we uh, are to care for our own. Children, I'm speaking particularly to you who have parents who are getting older and you parents who have uh, even older parents. Uh, there is an obligation, and Paul speaks of this in his letters to Timothy, or his letter to Timothy, that we have to care for our aged parents. If we can provide the means and the care, uh, we are obliged to do so. Not under the Mosaic uh, administration, but the New Covenant administration. That obligation is still there. So as we uh, prepare for the future and as we save and those sorts of things, those things, the possibility of that need to care for our parents, and as you choose uh, to buy a house with how many rooms you have in it, um, those are things that need to be uh, in the mix, shall we say, as you think about the future um, and your possible responsibilities to care for your parents. And uh, we are to also care, uh, you parents, of course, we are obliged to care for our children, even when they uh, perhaps become adults but uh, still need some of our help, although we can provide too much help, I suppose, to some of our children if we're not careful uh, and become enablers. But we are to care for our, in godly ways and wise ways for our children even as they grow up um, and are in need. Um, or have made mistakes. So, what's the third thing? The third thing that you need to notice, that we can notice uh, from the scriptures about a kinsman redeemer and his obligation, is it indicates that there will be a cost involved for the one doing the redeeming. In terms of both effort, uh, perhaps in terms of effort, in terms of expense, in terms of time, there is a cost to being a redeemer of one's kinsmen. We need to, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer must give of him or herself sacrificially to the one who needs our help in our family. And by the way, I would extend this beyond the biological family to the spiritual family too. I think that's a legitimate application. We have obligations to one another in this room and beyond this room uh, that may fall upon us when a, a brother or sister in Christ is in distress and needs our help. We have to take that seriously. Otherwise, we sin by not taking it seriously, our obligations. So let's go back to our uh, the account here in Ruth. Who was... Naomi's and Ruth's kinsman redeemer, as I've already said, obvious, Boaz. Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband and of Ruth's deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. He's a close relative. Now, I'm not going to delve into the details of how Boaz redeemed Ruth or Naomi today. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 4. I just simply want to introduce to you this concept of the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz was it. He rescued Naomi and Ruth. He was there with small s, savior, deliverer, redeemer. 
Which brings me to the second point of this passage, which is implied. It's not explicit in the text, but it's certainly implied in the text. And I've already indicated to you. Because um, because of God's covenant love, uh, not only for Ruth and Naomi, but for you and for me, he has not only provided a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, he has provided one for you and me as well. And that is the Lord Jesus. That responsible Israelites had to be redeemers of their distressed kinsmen, that fact that that was found in the law, where we read it in Leviticus and it was also in Numbers, that fact was not some random command that God just tossed in there because he liked making commandments for his people to keep. There's nothing random about those provisions of the law that are somehow unrelated to uh, uh, to other aspects of the covenant relationship that God had with them. No. It was very purposeful. It was very important. It was very much related to the covenant that he had made with Israel. Indeed, it points to the very heart of the gracious nature of that covenant that God had made with Israel and indeed with us. The duties, you see, of a kinsman redeemer mirror the redemptive actions of Yahweh himself. They are a type. Boaz was another type of Jesus, just like Moses was, and David was, and Aaron was, and Adam was, and we could go on and on and on. But he was a type of Christ. His duties as that redeemer of Naomi and Ruth mirrors, albeit in a temporal uh, way, the redemptive actions of God in Christ. The Lord, Jesus, you see, God, redeemed the people of Israel out of the oppression that they were experiencing at the hand of their Egyptian taskmasters. They were enslaved. They were owned by an evil Lord, shall we say, much as we are owned by an evil Lord before Jesus gets a hold of us. Satan is our father prior to our conversion. Well, the Egyptians were satanic. They're represented as such in Scripture, as, as evil, as uh, representing the forces of evil, spiritual forces of evil. And they were evil. And they had enslaved God's people. And the Lord redeemed Israel. Now, he didn't actually pay the Egyptians a ransom for Israel's freedom, exactly with money, at least. But he paid a price for them, nonetheless, by means of the exercise of his sovereign grace expressed toward Israel and his dealings with them. You say, where's that in Scripture? Well, among other places, it's found in Exodus chapter 6, where the word redemption or redeemer is used, uh, describing what God, what Yahweh did for Israel of old. Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. I'll start reading. I'll actually start reading in uh, verse 4. The Lord is speaking here. No, I'll go back to verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. There's the, the covenant name. 
uh, that we don't know the pronunciation of. I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. And further, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Interesting to note here, the covenant made with Abraham is the basis and the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, they aren't as some people have represented. The Mosaic covenant isn't as some people have represented it, uh, even in Reformed circles, as fundamentally a legal covenant, or a, a, a law covenant, rather, a works covenant. It's not fundamentally a works covenant. It is fundamentally gracious, even though there are legal components to it. Anyway, because it's based on the very gracious Abrahamic covenant. Abraham didn't do a thing. God just said, I'm entering into covenant with you and saving you and all your descendants with you. And Mosaic covenant was likewise gracious fundamentally. So anyway, so but notice he says in verse 6, because I didn't finish reading, Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also, there it is, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord, meaning the covenant Lord, covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. And so he here indicates that what he was doing for Israel of old was fundamentally redeeming them. Delivering them, paying, if you will, uh, uh, buying them back from the evil one, represented by the nation uh, of Egypt. Not, excuse me, not buying them back from the evil one. I, I retract what I just said there. That's the wrong way to put that. But anyway, so redemption is what happened to the people of God of of old. The Lord also not only redeemed the people, but he redeemed the land, the land of Canaan, the physical land, on behalf of his people by, again, by the exercise of his sovereign, gracious power. And he gave it to those people as their inheritance to Israel of old, which is why he would not allow any parcel of land within Israel to be permanently sold, as we read over in uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, a while ago, earlier in the sermon. Don't don't allow that land to remain in the hands of a stranger. It needs to come back to the people of God, to Israel. Either had to be redeemed by a close member of that the seller of the land's family, or if if no one was found within the family to redeem that land that had been sold by another member of the family, ownership of the property would revert back to the original owner in the year of Jubilee, as we read. Either way, it was coming back. It could not be permanently sold. By requiring the Israelites to buy back land that a member of their own family had been forced to sell, and by 
uh, and to buy it back on that family member's behalf, God was simply requiring his people to do what he himself had done for them. Over and over again, in Isaiah 40, chapters 40 through Isaiah chapter 55, if you look at those chapters and read them, I encourage you to do that today, if you have time. That's a good day to read extendedly in the Bible. Over and over again in that those chapters, God is described uh, as the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Israel's Redeemer. Jeremiah also describes the Lord as Redeemer in uh, Jeremiah 50, uh, 34, and perhaps elsewhere in Jeremiah. Psalm 19, verse 14, and following as well. Yahweh is thus portrayed as a God who relieves the oppressed people of their burdens, who sets the captive free, and who calls a people to be members of his own family, covenant family. The scriptures represent God this way. And the point is that God's people were to act, the point of this account is that God's people were to act as kinsmen redeemers under the old covenant because God himself was a kinsman redeemer. How was God our kinsman? The incarnation. Jesus shares our humanity, still does. We are his, he is our kinsman. He is our elder brother in the faith, as we sometimes say. And that's legitimate to describe him that way. He describes himself that way in Psalm 22, verse 22 and following. God is a redeemer. And he says, therefore, you be sources of deliverance. And we do this by caring for our adult, uh, our, 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 aging parents, by caring for others whom God has blessed us in our family with. We do this by also sharing the gospel, right? As we tell others, you can be relieved from your your enslavement to sin by coming to Christ, by fleeing to the one who uh, purchased sinners like yourself, to be freed from the bondage to the evil one and to sin and death. We are to be sources of life, sources of redemption through our, uh, through, uh, in, in temporal ways, but also through our conversations, because God Himself, in the person of the Son in particular, is a kinsman redeemer. And this text is pointing us to Jesus through the person and work of Boaz. And again, Jesus paid a much greater price, an infinitely greater price than Boaz paid. Boaz lost some grain. Boaz, um, you know, lost some money that he ended up spending on uh, Ruth and Naomi's well-being. But his was a very, very finite cost to him. The cost that... Our kinsman redeemer, our savior, paid for us was infinite. Is what was infinite. 
He didn't have to do any of it. He could have left us all to our own devices and said, again, go to hell. Because he wanted to show grace. Magnify his grace and his love and his mercy and his compassion and his forbearance. He wanted to save a people for himself. You, me, others out there. This text is pointing to Jesus and causing should cause you and me to revel afresh in the love of our God and the compassion of our Savior for us and to fill us with gratitude, to fill us with greater love, greater desire to emulate our Savior, to be salt and light in this very dark world. Go be salt and light. Go shine. Let Jesus shine through you in this coming week by the way you act, by the way you speak, by the way you think. Serve this wonderfully gracious God of yours. Honor this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text that points us to Christ, points us to, reminds us of our desperate need for redemption from the bondage that we were in before we were converted by you, your gracious work in our hearts. How we thank you that you love to forgive sinners who deserve your justice and your wrath. Thank you that that love is expressed in the covenant of grace that was made with Jesus as the second Adam and with us through our union with him. Thank you that you are willing to pay the awful debt that we owe if we will just come to you in faith, knowing and believing that only you, Jesus, can save us. Lord, if there's anyone listening to me here in this room or afar who has not trusted in Jesus, you, Lord Jesus, alone, would you please have mercy on such a one? Would you please remove the blinders from his or her eyes? Would you please grant faith where there is none? And would you please cause such a one to cry out, Jesus, save me. And for the rest of us, would you please fill us with even greater gratitude than we came into this room with this morning as we leave. And would you please cause us to want to honor you in every way possible by the way we act and speak and think in coming days ahead. Help us to do this, Holy Spirit. Give us the grace we need, the strength we need to say no to sin and yes to obedience. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.